welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Good morning, Epiphany Fellowship family. Welcome to our gathering. Welcome to those who are Zooming in and joining us uh, via all the same means, whether you're on Facebook, whether you're streaming directly. Welcome uh, and thank you for tuning into Epiphany Fellowship's uh, worship service. And we are thankful beyond measure that out of all the streaming opportunities to stream out there, uh, that you tuned in to uh, ours. I was talking to some preachers then, we was realizing that people are doing stream jumps, you know. If you ain't feeling a word here, you just jump over to this stream. And if they're not at a good point in your word, you go over to this one and that one. And so hopefully we can we can get you to stay tuned in. Um, the Lord will get you to tune in and settle into the word of God today as we dive into uh, uh, the, our current series that we are still working through and, 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 um, and, and, and attempting to frame what is needed um, for the church to be framed, and that's the idea of order in the church. I don't care where you at, say order in the church. And, and that's so important that we think through this reality as we look at what does it mean for the church to operate in order in every sector of what it is and who it is and what it does. And so that, that's what we want to dig into series-wise, continuing through that series through First and Second Timothy, possibly Titus. Let's, let's, let's uh, turn over to First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 reads like this. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation, uh, the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into the disgrace and the devil's trap. I, I want in, in our sector of what we're talking about now in order in the church, in this pericope, I'd like to talk about order in leadership. Order in leadership. Let's go before God. God, we thank you and we honor you for uh, your order, for your grace, and for your mercy. And God, I pray that you would uh, touch us with your faithfulness as we uh, know that we're in a society that needs orderly leadership. And Lord God, I pray that you would encourage believers who are not under orderly leadership to find some to be under. I pray that those who are in leadership would be convicted about any way in which we are missing the mark and not living in light of your kingdom program and rubric as it pertains to leadership. And so, Lord, 
let the words of my mouth and let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Order in leadership. Um, one, uh, one time I was asked by a church, uh, they were looking for a pastor. And as they were looking for a pastor, their team reached out to me. And as I began to talk with them, I began to ask when I met with them, I, I said, what do you look for in a pastor, a leader? And, you know, of course, someone, someone said preacher, you know, someone that can lead. Uh, they started naming a lot of different things. And as we began to talk and I began to realize they were saying some great things. They were saying some great things. They were, they were saying some great communication as it, I mean, nothing was sinful. Nothing was necessarily off base. However, one of the things that I noticed as the meeting went on was there was no biblical foundation that they were pulling from to basically say, this is what we're looking for in a leader. So, uh, you know, they, th they threw out seminary and, you know, hopefully a doctorate degree, all these different things. And all of those things are good things, but not necessarily biblical things that are non-negotiables. Um, and, and as I began to talk to them, I, I asked them, I said, turn your, turn your Bibles to First Timothy 3. I said, turn to T Titus chapter 1. I said, turn to John 10. And I said, turn to Ezekiel 4, uh, 34. And, and, and Psalm 23. And as I started, I just started reading the passages. And as I began just reading the passages to them, I, I started asking them, I said, how many of you in your pastoral search committee have ever just read these verses? And they was like, as I was reading 1 Timothy 3, they said, one lady said, she said, Pastor, if we would have read this before we got some of the passages we got, we would have kept ourselves out of a lot of trouble. And, that, and she said, but now I, I think this is helping us to get equipped. And so we, we began, we, I just began working with them and giving them basically a basic, simple foundation, stuff that, you know, you know some of us would seem as a given, you know, uh, um, they, they, they didn't see that particular way. And I think when it comes to believers, I don't know if many believers have biblical expectations of pastors. I think we have personal expectations of pastors. Uh-oh. Um, and so in, in, other, in other words, in other words, as you begin to think about leadership, as you as a believer <clears throat> begin, what, what comes to your mind when it comes to what a leader should not just do, but what a leader should be? Let me say that again. Not just what a leader should do, but what a leader should be. It's interesting that here in 1 Timothy, it never... It, it, it spends very little time in this passage talking about what a pastor does. In this pericope, in this passage, verse 1 through 7, it, it talks very little about what a pastor does. It talks more about what a pastor is. And that, that's very important. It, it, it kind of, as we will see in this passage, It'll talk about three areas. It'll talk about personal character, family character, and public character. Let me say that again. Personal character, 
family character and public character. Why is this so important? Because in chapter 1, verse 3, um, Paul says to Timothy, he says, I've left you there in Ephesus in order that you may teach certain people not to teach strange doctrine. Why is that important for us? Because Timothy had to go into a church as a younger leader. And basically, uh, you, you got to understand, Eph Ephesus was an OG church. It was a theologically astute church. Had a lot of leaders, but it also had a lot of mess in the church. <clears throat> and so Timothy was supposed to go in there and tell certain men and women who were communicating bad doctrine to sit down somewhere and have it to remove people. Listen, it's easy to exalt people. It's harder to remove people. Uh, uh, exaltation is easy because everyone celebrates when someone gets a come up. But the challenge is, is when there is some back end mess that happens and they have to be pulled back. It's very, very difficult. And so Paul is trying to put in place some ways in which not to necessarily alleviate issues altogether, but at least to be able to get in front of them with good principles. So when we talk about order and leadership. Most people's view of church is shaped by leadership. Most people's understanding of ministry is shaped by leadership. Most people's understanding of the pulpit is shaped by leadership. Leadership is a very, very important aspect of church. And one place we have to recognize is that leadership, whether you like it or not, whether we want to say the church is everybody, that's fine. But at the end of the day, leadership sets the tone for the church. Whether you like it or not, leadership sets the tone for family. Leadership sets the tone uh, for ministry. Leadership sets tone for doctrine. Leadership set, uh, set, uh, uh, moves forward everything and help people to begin to know how the operational standards of the church are. And so we can't fail at our commitment to make sure that we have clear and unadulteratedly gospel-driven, God-driven leadership. So, amen. So, we got one point, one point only today. One point, one point only today. Being a leader starts with character, not competency. Being a leader starts with character, not competency. Um, notice I didn't say that it, it lacked competency. I didn't say... I didn't say, don't, don't hear me saying competency isn't important, but being a leader never starts with what you do and what you're able to do. <clears throat> what leadership starts with is who you are, what your character is like, what's your integrity like, what's your life like. Um, one of the things that we've made a big mistake in church is putting people in place because of gifts but not examining and looking at their godliness. <laughs> because, because what gifts can do is a gift can give you upfront attention on a whole bunch of levels, but godliness can actually carry the character of the gift farther than the gift alone with grossness. And so, and so as we talk about today, a leader's, being a leader starts with character, not competency. Let's look at verse... One, it says this is a trustworthy saying. Not it says if anyone aspires, aspires <coughs> to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. And so, what is interesting here is for me, this verse 
clearly is more about calling than anything else. This is not just somebody just running around talking about, I want to be a pastor because they have a view of it. And I'm just telling you right now, um, you need to be called to this. You don't need to just go to this. You, this, this, this needs to be a calling. You need to be sent. You need to be a sent, not a went. It's two different things. A, a went, you'll find out in a minute. A sent, a stay in there for a little while. Aspire points to calling. Both aspire and desire <laughs> here points to calling. Um, aspire points to the, the, the desireness to strive and attain for it. And that's based on calling. And so the point of calling is this. Calling is an unshakable burden that one experiences in the soul. <laughs> an unshakable burden that one experiences in the soul. If you look at Abraham, if you look at Moses, if you look at Isaiah, if you look at Obadiah, if you look at uh, 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 Ezekiel, if you look at Jeremiah, if you look at David, you can go through the corridors of the Bible and look at calling. And most people that got called weren't even looking to be called. <clears throat> but once they got called, interestingly enough, and they got their will aligned with God's, even if they didn't want to do it, there was such a heavy burden on them that they couldn't help but to do that particular thing. That's why Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Because there's a sense, not, not that he'll be cursed because of it, but there's just this sense of heaviness. When you're called to do something and God has oil on your life, when you're called to do something, you can't help but do it. Nobody can talk you out of it. No trial can, can break you from doing it. When, when you are called to do something and God, the Spirit, has put a burden in your life to do something, there is no obstacle that can get in the way of it. And God utilizes mechanisms and tests to test whether or not you're actually called to do what you say you can do. Yeah. Because calling, call, you, 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 you know somebody called when, they, when, when some hell-raising seasons came up in their life and they could have quit, but they stayed. If that's somebody that's called, calling is a hefty, godly, God-centered burden to accomplish God's kingdom will, and it's unshakable. It's unshakable. And so when he talks about this idea of desires, uh, desire, uh, 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 you, know, you know, his passion and, and desiring a good thing, the, the, the Greek word there for desire is epithumeo. Epithumeo is normally the word that's used for lust. It can also be used as good passion. In other words, usually when you're called to do something, God puts the passion in you. If the passion doesn't get there, you're in trouble <clears throat> because there has to be passion that's connected. And when I say passion, passion can't be like, I need to be preaching. I need to be using my gift. That's not a passion. That's about you. See, calling is more than just about your gift usage, even though you are, you're passionate about your gift usage because of what will happen as a result of it with God's strength. Not merely because you want to floss. You understand what I'm saying? So one of the things you got to recognize, if you want to do this right, you have to be called. And one of the things that in different contexts, I remember when I was in seminary, and you know, black folk, we, we say we call to preach, right? You know, I, when I was in seminary, my white siblings, they, 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 a lot of them, not everybody, but most of them, oh, you know, what made you want to come to seminary? Oh, you know, I just wanted to learn the Bible better and maybe think of in ministry as an option, you know. The black dudes in class, we was confused. We was like, now you got to have some type of calling. <clears throat> and, I, and as I began to work through both idea, uh, cultural ideas of calling, 
um, you know, as some of my white siblings, they saw ministry as a deduction of things that you come across over time of being in community and you, some things come to the top. Black person, we since calling, you broke down and you know, you, 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 you got this heaviness over you and you got to preach. Now, both of those have their pluses and minuses. One, on one side, this is very important for you to understand when it comes to calling. One on one side understands that it takes community credibility to affirm a calling. On the other side, the other one sees it as there has to be a God-driven encounter with God in order to affirm calling, right? The challenge with one side that talks about the, the, the call to preach is a reductionistic view of calling because, because the Bible does have a call to preach in it, but the call to preach, it's a broader call. In a passage like this, it's talking about a call to pastor. And if you know anything about pastoring, it is way more than preaching. I know some of y'all think I sit down and read a Bible verse for a few minutes and memorize some stuff and get up and preach. I wish it was like that. But, uh, 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 but developing a sermon is a way more than that. But, but, and pastoring is way more than that. And so when a person gets into ministry and, 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 and people have a view of calling, well, this is for free. <clears throat> we have to have a view of calling that is not preacher-centered. We have to have a view of calling that views a lot of different kingdom mechanisms as an outgrowth of that. But particularly in this text, pastoring in relation to calling, you have to look at it as a broader calling, not just preaching, even though preaching is one of the pinnacle activities of the pastoral calling. All right, so, this is, so, so, so I'm not gonna spend much time on that, right? <clears throat> but I wanted us to really, really get into that. <clears throat> now it says, he who desires to be an overseer or has a passion or wants to attain to being an overseer. You know, I know some of y'all are like, overseer? Um, some passages translate this bishop, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> and I know people always ask me, pastor, what's the difference between a bishop, an overseer, an elder, and a, and a, a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, and an elder? And what, what, like, what's the difference? <laughs> well, technically, there are three different terms in the New Testament used for that. They'll put them up on the board, they'll put this on it, one, one, uh, shepherd slash pastor. <laughs> You'll see that in 1 Timothy, uh, um, 1 Peter 5. Um, you also have overseer, which overseer, bishop slash elder, which you'll see uh, here, is, it can be translated here in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, 5. And presbytery is a third word, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Verse 14. So presbuteros, episkopos, and poiamen. Those are the three terms in the New Testament for um, those different roles. Now, look here. The shepherd uh, title of the overseer is focused and more emphasis on care and connectivity to the flock. Emphasis also on feeding. You'll see that on the board as well. Overseer gives emphasis on oversight and ruling and authority, protection and leading. <clears throat> Presbyter, that's why it's used here in Timothy in particular. Presbytery, you'll see in 1 Timothy 4.14, emphasis on a community of equals with mutual accountability with a first among equals, some call a senior pastor or lead pastor at the helm. In other words, in a church, there should be a community of qualified leaders who lead, uh, elders or pres presbytery or uh, I know my Presbyterian brothers view the Presbyterian as, the, as, the, as all of the pastors in that particular, elders in that particular denomination, particularly the lead, 
uh, uh, the, the TEs or whatever. <clears throat> you know, I know uh, my Kojic brethren and different ones have different levels of, they have the bishop, the overseer. Uh, uh, we'll talk about why certain churches do that. How, uh, however, particularly in its uses here, the unified qualifications are the same for all, right? And so y'all know what we talk about. You know, when it comes to leadership, and this is to give you very, very quickly, before we get into these characteristics, what a pastor does. A pastor is supposed to lead, feed, care, know, and protect. Uh, a, 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 a pastor is supposed to lead, feed, care, know, and protect the flock. That means uh, uh, as a leader, 1 Timothy 5.17, a visionary leader leading towards truth uh, and, and correction. Amen. Feed, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Guide them in the truth, teach them and preaching, teaching and preaching the word of God. Care, Matthew 9, 35 through 36. Counsel, binding up broken, if you will, right? That's Ezekiel 34. Know the flock. Uh, 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 have a working knowledge of their issues so that you can relevantly engage what they need engaged in their life. Pastors being students of the flock. Protect, lastly, defend against spiritual and natural threats in the life of the flock from within and without. So that means we gotta, we gotta fight against false doctrine, false prophets, false teaching, but also physical abuse, <laughs> emotional abuse, verbal abuse. It's, it's comprehensive. We, 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 like, 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 if, like if someone's getting abused in their marriage, physically abused in their marriage, we're not going to tell them to suffer for Jesus and stay there in the house. No, we're going to help as a church to come around them to protect them from the abuser by getting them out the house and getting help for everybody. Uh, and, and so, and so, so y'all didn't, didn't know that's how far. It's not just getting up telling you what the wrong doctrine is. It's also protecting you from physical harm at times and emotional harm and having to dig in to the shepherding life of people when we know about it. So these are just some of the competencies of that. But said, we desire noble work <coughs> when you want a pastor. Now look at verse two. Let's get to that. I give you an overview kind of the competencies without going into a bunch of details. But I want us to begin to look into here and begin to peer into what does order in the life of a leader look like? And here it is. It says in verse two, an overseer must be above reproach. That idea of above reproach here in the passage is, um, is, is an interesting idea. It means unimpeachable. It means there's no known offense that is available in that person's life that would bring a challenge to how people would view the role in order for that person to execute pastoring with credibility. In other words, being above reproach means to be able to pastor with credibility. That means even if somebody falls and they're restored, when God restores someone, he restores their credibility. The challenge is, 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 is if you got a leader and you got issues in your church that goes unaddressed because people refuse to confront the leader about mess, what you begin to do is you become, like 1 Corinthians 5 says, you become arrogant and you begin to let the mess fester. And the Bible says a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And what will begin to happen is a cult, the cultural character of the pulpit will make itself to the practical lives in the pews. And so therefore, we have to begin to challenge those things that are covert and overt concerns in the church. Um, uh, 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 and so that's what we mean when we talk about unimpeachable. 
It says husband and one wife. And somebody said, why you got to even say that? You know, mios, gynecos, andros means one woman man. Um, it doesn't mean one woman at a time. I, I have this woman leave her. That's not what that means. It, it points to marital faithfulness. Points to marital faithfulness. Faithful, faithful to one woman. Faithful to one woman if he's married, right? Um, somebody said, does a pastor have to be married? The hope is, I think it's safer for him to be married. Um, but I don't think it's a biblical mandate. I think that the idea is if he's married, then he needs to be faithful to that wife. And if he's single, uh, he needs to be faithful as a single to the Lord through not, uh, uh, you know, showcasing his talents in the congregation and beyond. Come on, sir. Amen. All right. All right. And so, uh, so, 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 so it says, he says, one woman, man, I would say preferably, I usually like for guys to be married in pastoral leadership because of all that comes with it. That's another sermon for another time in another place. But that, that's my preference. Self-control is another attribute or way in which a leader is supposed to uh, walk in. And self-control is a very, very powerful idea. It, 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 in general, it means to be moderate. It means to not overdo your freedoms, and be restricted from those things that are not freedoms. In other words, the idea, I, I like the way this lexicon says, this is strictly having a sound and healthy mind as having the ability to curb desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. That's, that's dope, right? And so one of the things that we, we, we describe self-control as is passions on a leash. It doesn't mean you don't have passions and desires that God has given you. And it's not just sexual, it's everything. And so it's on a leash, meaning that you unleash to where it's supposed to go, leash where it's not supposed to go. You know, there's a lot of big dogs here. You know, we've used this before. Y'all have heard this before is that, you know, on a big dog, you can't use a little vinyl leash. You got to get chains from Home Depot and Lowe's and stuff like that. And you got to put around that joker neck because of how big it is and how out of control it can get at times. And so when we talk about this idea and what we when we look at this idea of self-control, self-control isn't also just controlling oneself by yourself, but it also means putting in place the mechanisms that help you to stay self-controlled. One of the things I don't do as a leader is one of the things I don't do is I don't, I don't uh, engage in the finances of the church on my own. That's why we have a financial manager. That's why we have a stewardship pastor, right? Uh, that's why we have somewhat of a finance, uh, not somewhat, but we have a finance team here, right? Um, not only that, when I travel, I don't travel alone. I, I travel with someone. That's why I have male assistants usually so that I can have a male with me uh, so that uh, not necessarily that I'm going to jump at or something or jump into something, but what I want to do by the grace of God <laughs> is to make sure that that doesn't come to me and I don't come to it and there's no ambiguity with what happened. And there was a witness there. I remember one time when I was um, doing an engagement <coughs> in a certain city and a woman called my room and my wife was in there. She said, um, is Eric Mason there? My wife said, who is this? And she was like, who is this? And you know, you don't have to ask a wife who she is, you know, like, like you're the known one and she's not. And, um, and, and the and woman said, well, I'm Eric Mason's mistress. And it didn't go well from there. And um, my, my, I got back to the room from getting some wings downstairs. And my wife said, what's going on? I said, what you mean, what's going on? And she began to go through the scenario. And I was like, babe, 
you know, I, first off, God don't let me get away with just, I don't know what it is about me. I, I don't get away with just having some long secret, you know. God just outs me. But as she began to think about it and we walked through it and all of those different things, she's like, I, I, I know, babe. It just was crazy and it was strange. And we believe it was the work of the devil. Matter of fact, I even called one, some of my friends. I text like 20 of them. It was like, yo, pray for me. This is what happened. And, they were, and several guys said that happened to them before, that they were out and they were, and someone randomly called the room and said that particular thing. So I guess it's a running thing that happens. But by the grace of God, uh, we want to walk as people who are kept and walk as, uh, 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 have a moral authority as leaders for the glory of God. But we need moral accountability. We need financial accountability. This is not the law. This is truth. And this is grace. And you have to recognize that any of us can do any sin at any time. And when you assume that you can do any sin at any time, you put in place ways to help you not to go quickly into the sin that you could go into without the grace of God uh, causing something not to happen in order for you not to go into that particular thing. Next is sensible. <clears throat> means temperate or wise, restrained, kind of like connected. Because Some of these words will overlap. And so you'll, you'll see some some relationship there in some of these words, restrained. Notice all of this stuff <coughs> is pointed to character, right? Res respectable. I like this, befitting being admirable or, uh, 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 you, you, uh, in other words, it, it, means, uh, it, it means to have your life properly arranged or well-ordered in a way that people can look at your life and see attributes that are comparable for them. Right, respectable, hospitable means to be a friend of strangers. Means that, in other words, you're nice and that you don't treat people dirty, but that you're willing to, if a, per, if you don't, if a person doesn't have any connection, stranger points back to the Old Testament. Israelites being the people of God, those who are not Israelites are called strangers. Israel was called in Leviticus 19 and in Deuteronomy and other passages to be loving to the stranger. This whole idea of being loving to the stranger is missiological and evangelistic. In other words, it points to the leader having evangelistic fervor through how they treat non-Christians. That means they're not judging non-Christians harshly, but treating non-Christians with an open heart and open hand and an opportunity for communication and engagement. But, but hospitality has a lot to do with the heart because to open up your life and to stop your schedule, particularly if you are a didactic person, is difficult because usually a sojourner or a stranger or people with needs are, can be an interruption to a schedule. And so a leader has to be able to lovingly view things through the eyes of a person that wants to care for others. This is one of the only times in the passage right here, able to teach, is the only competency that's really talked about here, besides one more. <clears throat> but one, the other competency is, flows, out of the, flows out of something else. So when you look at able to teach, or old translation says apt to teach, that means on some level, you gotta be growing and developing as a communicator, a skilled communicator, to be able to communicate the word of God to God's people. Um, <laughs> It's interesting. Now it goes into the knots. It says, not an excessive drinker. It, it, it says, you, you know, the, the pastor doesn't drink too much. It says, not a bully, but gentle. Now this idea of not a bully, 
It points to abusive leadership. That means that leaders should not be abusive leaders. Now, let me qualify something here. Being abusive leader doesn't, is, is not a, per, a, a pastor or a leader who has called you out on your sin and you calling it abusive because you're getting challenged. That's not abusive. Abusive leadership is leaders who lord it over people who don't listen to anyone, but who makes decisions without, without any type of connection. And that's in the community of the leadership as well. Um, and so, and so, so, so one of the things that it, 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 it points to is in your confrontation and in your challenges of people that you're not a bully and that you're not running people along and misusing your power and not misusing your power. But then it says, but gentle, but, 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 but gentle. That, that means that they're merciful and tolerant of slight deviations and know how to restore people well. Gentle, restore such a one in gentleness, the Bible says, when they fall into temptations, right? None of that, it says not quarrelsome, not always trying to, in other words, you're peaceful, you're not trying to fight everybody. You know, you're not, you're not trying to start church fights and start and create church beefs and challenges and stuff like that. But, 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 you're, but you're easy to get along with. You're not looking for a way to fight. You're looking for a way to keep peace in the church. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Wow. But then it says, not greedy, not loving money. You know, one of the things that is interesting is pastors have gotten a rap in culture about wanting money. But most of the guys I know, they're not greedy men. They're, they're men that love Jesus, and some are even many, most are even underpaid, right? And so not greedy. And so it's beautiful to see the beautiful reality of that. But yeah, we're not supposed, a, a characteristic of a pastor is not to be greedy. That's why <clears throat> those who promote a, a money uh, as a mechanism, money that centers on them, that's a point of greed. Now, if a pastor's asking for money to give to a kingdom initiative, that's not being greedy. See, some people, because they've had bad experiences with pastors asking for money, anytime a pastor asks for money, they view it as going to the person, not going to the kingdom and the work of God, right? And so, uh, and, 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 so, and so that's very, very important for us to distinguish the two when a person is talking, when we're looking at the idea of greed, right? Then it goes in and it goes, it, it starts to go deeper. Now it says, he must manage his own household well. Manage his own household competently and have children under control. Managing household, I'll just say a few things about this. Um, the idea of manage here means to exercise a position of leadership, <clears throat> rule or give direction to the home. So one is ministry. They'll put these up here. Uh, 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 in managing your home, you should have a ministry of presence. You need to engage your home. You also should have a ministry of spiritual formation, spiritually leading the home. You should have a ministry of gospel promotion in the home. You should have a ministry of family vision. Know where your flocks and herds, Proverbs say. That means you should, be have, you should have a plan for everybody in your house, a directive for everybody in the house. And that, it, 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 that means engaging your wife, seeing what her heart's desires are, what her passions are, and how can you pour into those, invest in those, not just as a leader, say, invest in me and move the church forward, but not be concerned about her heart and what God wants in her life, A, to the doggone man. Um, having children under control with all dignity. I mean, your children can't be wild and little kids. Now, so kid grow up, 
and get out the house, they're on their own. So they're not under my control anymore because they're adults. But in the house, there should be a level of control, hopefully, that is under that. This, this not included if a child sins. It's talking about how a parent deals with their sin. How does a parent deal? With, you, you, this is, it'd be, I mean, nobody would be in ministry if all our kids were saved and in like if the requirement all our kids got to be saved and in ministry and sitting on the front row with dresses and church shoes on all right um but the reality of this idea of dignity is how you handle them how are you raising them how are you developing them in a a way that reflects the dignity of god the heart of god and the respectability of the position that you're in and he says if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household How will he take care of the household of God? In other words, the home and shepherding of the home and care for the home is a reflection of what the church will be like. If there's no vision in the home, there won't be any vision in the church. If there's no no shepherding and grace in the life of children, if they're there, there won't be any in the church. But hopefully there is both vision in the home, vision in the church. I may can't fix the, fix the pipes in the house, but I know how to get the resources to hire somebody to fix the pipes in the house, managing the household. Well, managing the household doesn't mean you do everything. It just means under your oversight, it all gets done. That's what it means. And so, and so, so managing, that's, that's what managing a house means. It doesn't mean you're around doing everything, right? <laughs> um, but then, then it goes even ser- more serious. It says, he must not be a new convert. The Greek word here is neophytos, neophytos, or where we get our word neophyte from. It means a new, new plant, if you will, a newly plant. It, it points to a newly planted person, right? That's why exaltation to the elder role must be slow. Must be slow. You got to give people time to mature because we can do someone a disservice by laying hands on them too suddenly. And then when everything blows up in our face, it's partially our fault if we put a person in place that wasn't ready to be put in that role and because they couldn't handle it, got, got, uh, 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 things blew up and it says, and they fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is interesting. <clears throat> the condemnation of the devil, what's the condemnation of the devil? The devil was condemned because of pride. He wanted to ascend on high. In other words, <clears throat> a person, you know, when, when you're young and something happens for you quick, this is like an artist. If an artist is like 19 and blows up and gets 40, 50 million dollars, do you think most people can be able to handle at that age 40 million dollars? Why? And what would their mind be? Man, I got 40 million at 19. I was rolling with 40 million. I was rolling with stacks on 19. You know, got the job. And what would they do? They would have a disposition towards it because their maturity doesn't see it from a particular perspective. Same thing in the church. You can't put somebody in leadership that's young in the faith because they're skilled but they don't have the character. You gotta put character before competency. If you put competency before character, then you set a person up for failure for them not to be on the trajectory that God would have had them on because we, instead of putting them in the prenatal unit and letting them grow in the ICU of the faith, we push them out to being surgeons when they should have been in the bed getting worked on as a patient. Not only that, he says, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, talking about the elder, the pastor, the overseer, so that he does not fall into the disgrace of Satan. What is Satan's disgrace? 
his testimony is, is ruined forever. We can fall into disgrace <clears throat> if we have a bad reputation with outside. The OGs called it a witness, having a good witness. But with all of this being said, and we could talk all day about uh, 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 leadership, and we can go into the different dynamics of it. But in Psalm 23, there's the picture of a perfect shepherd. Um, uh, uh, God is painting himself as the ultimate shepherd through the words of David, if you will. In Ezekiel 34, God said he would raise up a shepherd who will shepherd his people, a shepherd like him. And I, I call him the ultimate shepherd. And then Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus calls himself the God shepherd. In other words, he, he's not just the good shepherd, he's the God shepherd. And in being the God shepherd, he's the ultimate shepherd that is going to be the one that's ultimately going to be the one that not only fit these characteristics, but he will blow them off of their rails because of what he did. But one of the most powerful things that Jesus says a shepherd is in their competency, and this has to do with character and competency, but more in character than anything else. He says a true shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And guess what Jesus Christ did for us? He laid his life down on the cross for our sins and got up from the grave with all power in his hand. Therefore, not only telling us to do, but empowering us in our transformation through the gospel in order that we could be transformed and brought into new life. And so the beauty of thing beautiful about Jesus is before Jesus, even pastors are sheep. At the end of the day, pastors are sheep that need to be developed in their character by their great shepherd by the Holy Spirit, just like every other believer. And so, as we think about this idea of order in the church, first let's think about our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate shepherd. The Bible said he's the chief shepherd, but not only think about the reality of the chief shepherd, let's pray for pastors, let's pray for leaders, that they would walk in biblical character. Don't just pray for the sermon when he gets up to preach and teach. Pray for their families. Pray for household management. Pray for purity. You know, I, I was convicted because there's, a, there's some stuff that I'm working on. And I realize that I'm dealing with it biblically, but I didn't deal with it prayerfully. And sometimes you realize that some of what's happening can be connected to us not having a prayerful disposition towards something that would, God would have used as a way to be a protection mechanism for something that could have been avoided. Keep leaders in prayer. Your prayers are ways and mechanisms to help us to remain faithful to the Lord God. We don't do it on, we don't stay qualified and do this on our own and we don't have character on our own. We need your prayers. So pray heartily for leaders and pray most of all that we would follow and submit to the shepherd and administer the medicine that's administered to you, to ourselves. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the church. Lord, be with us today. Be with us as we develop and we turn and we put our hearts and face back on you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus wants to save you from the wrath of God and from sin and death. And you should put your confidence in Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in the fact that God sent him to die in your place. God came down and died in 
your place. Why did he die in your place? Because you were supposed to, you were supposed to, you and I, not you, and I was supposed to spend eternity separated from God because of our sin. But God gave grace in order to stop us from making an eternal disposition a reality and now has changed us by faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection from those who are enemies of God, who are friends of God. If you want to become a friend of God today, place your confidence in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. If you are in uh, the, uh, they, they'll put a link there where you can, we can connect with you. If you have, if you want more information on salvation and what it means to go from spiritual disconnection to spiritual connection, from spiritual lifelessness to spiritual life, God wants to save you. Place your confidence in Jesus Christ today. Well, <clears throat> um, communion is a time that we celebrate every Sunday. We celebrate communion because, again, it's the mighty equalizer in a culture like we're in right now where equality is a major issue. Communion is a symbol of the new covenant. Um, it's a symbol of the new covenant that reminds every believer that all of us were sinners and all of us are saved by grace and all of us are in need of Jesus Christ and our focus must be on him. When we focus on him, all else melts away and fades and we're able to see more clearly, not become colorblind, but become uh, uh, dignity conscious. Uh, when, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is our bodies, which is given up for us. Let us eat together. Then he took the cup and said, this is my body, and this is my blood, blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Let us drink together. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding gladness and joy. To him, our God and Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Everybody agree with that said? Amen. God bless you. Take care. Have a good one. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.